0: Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. Our guest this week is Craig Ruglis, well, along with his husband Gary Jackamuck, run Winnetka Farms in Los Angeles' San Fernando Valley. Craig and Gary grow heirloom Italian vegetables, breed standard double laced Barnevelder chickens, bake bread, preserve food, and much more. In the first part of our conversation, we'll talk about heirloom Italian vegetables. In the second part, on next week's podcast, we'll talk about livestock. Welcome, Craig.
1: Hello, thank you.
2: Hi, Craig.
0: Great to have you on. So we've known each other for actually quite a few years now. I think uh, you called me first, right? Because I had posted about Frankie vegetables.
1: Yes. um, I uh, was at the beginning of importing Frankie Cemente or Frankie Italian seeds from Italy and I think I did. I probably did a Google search for, for general information, and you popped up your blog that you had posted about your uh, being a big fan of the Frankie Seeds. And so yeah, I I, um, I don't know. I sent you an email, or I somehow got a phone number and called you. And I remember I was I was doing um, I was selling the seeds at some event that was being done at Mariposa Creamery, and I invited you to come along and introduced you to my friends and who you now have known for some time as well so
2: yeah that was yeah a, that was a fortunate meeting I that think. was
0: actually yeah and thought about that because yeah, i ended I up working Steve for and, Gloria and, and joseph schuldiner and, 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 and everyone yeah, yeah
2: you you introduced us to uh, a crowd of hip kids <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but i yeah. thought to,
0: to set the scene actually that sometime after we met uh, you wanted me to record a conversation with your uncle Luigi. Yes. Because uh, you you grew up in a, a, a half Italian family, right? One half is Italian. Yes. And uh, to set the scene a little bit, Luigi and the family lived in South Los Angeles. What is now, I guess, it'd be now South Central. Is that that right?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know if their neighborhood was technically part of South Central, but it was at the house was uh, located at or is still there. It's at 400, 400 I think maybe East Sixty Seventh Street, and it was be- it's between uh, San Pedro and Avalon, and it was a um, you know a typical neighborhood. It hasn't changed much in all these years. The, all the houses are still there, although most of the wood siding is gone, and stucco has replaced wood siding. But that was where um, uh, my uncle Luigi grew up, and uh, grew up in the, from the early 20s until he left f- for the Merchant Marines. And um, I, I like to say that my great-grandparents, Giuseppe and Anna uh, Della Regione, were the original urban homesteaders because in the well, I've, I'm not sure of what year they bought the house. I want to say it was around maybe 90, early 20s. They were there was still open countryside just south of them um, by maybe 10 blocks, and but between there and in their their small yard on 67th, they raised their own hogs all their own chickens for eggs and meat made, uh, had a, a wood fired bread oven in the backyard for baking bread for the entire family you know, made their own wines, even during Prohibition. Uh, there was a big, those family stories about, you know, they ate a lot of grapes. <laughs> <laughs> they ate a lot of fresh grapes. This was the story my grandmother said when, in actuality, in their illegally dug basement, my great-grandfather was making wines and liqueurs. And, um, you know, and, and the reason they did this is, you know, as my Uncle Luigi said, they were, they were very poor, and there was a lot of them you know, eight children, and two adults, and a lot of extended family. And they had the know-how and the desire, and they they did for themselves. So I, you know, I grew up with first-hand account stories of those times, and learned and developed an interest in um, those uh, uh, those skills. And I guess you could say the lifestyle they they led, and and it still continues to this day with family. A lot of family still have retained those that interest and those skills, and um, even if you know everyone's moved far and wide.
2: Have you done uh, these things all your life, or just something you picked up later on, like the 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 hardcore? The, you, you
1: know, know what? It, it, these are things that I have done my whole life, but I will admit there was a period, you know get into high school and you want to go to college and you want to like you know
2: you're not thinking about chickens. Yeah,
1: you're not thinking about chickens. You're not thinking about, you know, you know canning tomatoes when you're 22 years old. <laughs> um, but I was I was the 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 kid that was always at my dad's side or my mom's side, my grandparents' side working on those projects or when we would go visit my Aunt Lucia at her ranch. And, you know, I was, we were all, uh, no one, no one set out a job on the the ranch. Everyone went to go pick blackberries and everyone was involved in the process until something was created out of them. So, um, so I grew up with it and was, you know, developed a a real interest in it all. And, and that was also, those stories were also from both sides because my mom's side, while they were not Italian, they grew up, you know, uh, moderate farmers, and a lot of those same skills were in their family because it's what farmers did. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I had it on both sides, but I was closest with the Italians, and um, and so I I, I I most closely associate with the with the Italian food and the Italian vegetables, uh, you know, uh, obviously. But yeah, I I don't want to say I left it, but I want to say you know you go on, you go to college, you do different things, you you know you work, you're single. And then, you know, as you get older, you have the ability to kind of like bring it back, you know, to Mm -hmm. like reclaim all the things that you were part of is when you were younger. And that's how it was for me. And I want to have to say it was like, you know, when I was in my uh, mid 20s, mid 30s, no, maybe early 30s was when I when I finally had a house where I had some, you know, I had a patch of land where I could like go grow something Mm. and and had a kitchen. I, you know, could finally you know do something in and do some canning and and curing but i was the say i was (laughs) i was the freak kid that when i was like when i was about 12 years old it's like if i want to you know i want to do something i would just we didn't have the internet i couldn't google recipes i would find it out and you know and i was the one who was in the kitchen making something like traditional, you know, cordial cherries or mm. you know, some some unusual thing. It's like it it wasn't enough for me like, Oh, I know we could go buy those, but I wanna know how to make those. And I would seek it I would seek it out.
2: <laughs> you are a great cook. That's what our listeners don't know, but you know, if you ever get to go over to Craig and Gary's house for and dinner. Inviting all the listeners. Over. You're
1: you're a yeah. lucky person. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! I got to go shopping. Because
2: yeah. <laughs> you will get stuff like that. You know, like he'll put out a like a dish of onions that he's pickled in the Italian style. and, oh, and I whipped up this jam last summer. And you know, here you eat one of my one of my heritage birds that I grew and slaughtered ten feet from here. And <laughs> uh-huh. what, you know, you you do everything. You do it all. So we'll get into that. Uh, do As you remember that
1: trout we had from my Uncle Luigi's Reservoir?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, so it's
1: yeah beautiful. that's right. That, yeah. that was rainbow trout that my Uncle Luigi, he raised in the reservoir at the ranch, and it was all fed from the Bear Creek, uh, you know, the Bear Creek Stream. Oh my gosh, that's been a couple. That's been a few years ago, but oh, yeah. I think that was with Gloria and Steve, and that was really that was. I good remember that
2: was like a hot summer day, and you made um, you made drinks with like a whipped whipped cucumber and vodka kind of thing, and it was
1: cucumber uh, lime like cucumber lime uh, martini sort Slushy. of drink. And well, they were like slushies. Were yeah. <laughs> right the garden. It was very, re- I remember that. It was really refreshing. Yeah. I still remember that meal. That was a lot of fun. It was good. That was a lot of fun.
2: Okay, Uncle Luigi, before yeah, uncle we get Luigi, off track. Before we get off
0: track here, I actually have a, I picked out a three minute uh, selection of that conversation that you recorded with your uncle, sadly, I think just before he passed on. So I thought we could listen to it and sure. I'll play it and hopefully you'll
1: be able to hear it. All
3: right. You know, in those days, of course, if you survived, well, you were lucky. <laughs> uh, um,
1: yeah, I imagine.
3: I know that you were very
1: poor, but...
3: Well, we we had our own wine. We made our own wine, and we did like the bread, the oven. Yeah. And uh, we had chickens and rabbits, and uh, we used to buy a goat every once in a while and have a goat. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, uh, they had mostly German. Uh, in those days, they had German dairies. Used to have milk, and we'd go and buy milk from the German. And were uh, once in a while, they'd come over and give us a calf—a oh. fresh-born calf, you know. I... And my dad would kill it; and we would eat it. And then another thing, too, in Los Angeles County in those days, it was pretty, pretty good ground around 67th Street. It was dark, real dark ground.
1: The soil was good to grow in.
3: Yeah, a real good soil. And we had, of course, a lot of snails.
1: You ate the snails, right?
3: dozens of snails, and I would have to go pick the biggest ones. You know, I'd look for them in the bushes and pick the biggest ones, and we'd put them in a bucket, and we'd cover them for three or four days until they emptied themselves out completely Yeah. without eating. Then my mother would cook them, and it was a scurgle.
1: That's how, it, how would she uh, cook them for you?
3: She would boil them and then put a good sauce on them.
1: Would she do uh, like a tomato sauce?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Would you eat it with pasta or just with bread?
3: No, just with bread. Just with bread? They were good.
1: I know that when you were growing up on 67th Street, you were extremely poor. Yes. But would, how would you compare the way you ate then to the way people eat today?
3: You know, Craig, you can't, I can't really put any kind of a number on it, but we ate as good, if not better then, than you eat today. Yeah. Everything was made Handmade. You didn't run to the store every day to buy food. You you survived on what you had and what you could raise, and it was all, as far as I remember, it was all very good. Look at my mother. Look at the size of my mother. (laughs) And my dad. They they weren't starving.
1: I find it fascinating that even though you were very poor, because of their know-how and their abilities, you were probably the best-fed children in town.
3: I think we probably were. We had an awful lot of people that would come to dinner. We had a regular family dinner every Sunday, and it would be at my mother's house. And I can take me here a half hour to, to tell you what we used to have. We had eggplant. Uh, we had artichokes. We had everything that you can imagine. And uh, it was done in, in sections like uh, we would have seven-course meals. And that,
0: was, that was unreal, you know. So that was your uh, Uncle Luigi recorded yeah. a couple of years ago. And I remember after we got off the phone with him, you wept. Do you remember that? Do you remember why? It, we, were, we were both very emotional after that conversation.
1: Well, um, it makes me want to <laughs> cry right now. Uh, immediately because I miss him. I miss him a great deal. You know, we spoke often, and, um, you know, he lived up in Northern California, but, you know, we just, you know, pick up the phone and call each other just to, you know, shoot the breeze, but, or I'd call him to ask advice or his opinion or, you know, or, you know, how, how something was done. And he always remembered everything in such great detail, even up till like the last week of his life. It was amazing. But I think, I think it's also emotional because. I had such a I have such a close connection with my family, and listening to the stories, you know, it just really reminded me of my grandparents and my parents who are gone, and um, uh, a part of my life that will be will be forever gone because, you know, because the people themselves are gone. However, it's not a complete negative. They those people my family and family that I that were gone before I was even born my great grandparents i have a relationship with them because of what they taught me because of what i experienced because of of them and their know-how and their knowledge through the stories through the food they they're never really gone but i do miss
0: them mm. yeah there was a sense in which some of the knowledge maybe has been lost but listening to you talk now i realized that in your own yard you in your own yeah, life no, you've they... been able to recreate that to a great extent that that all the things that your uncle luigi describes are things that you do right now you're breeding chickens you've got this amazing vegetable garden you got all kinds of things going. I don't um, know if you've done snails or not, but uh, no,
1: I haven't. But you know what? It's it's actually <laughs> it's on my list <laughs> <laughs> on the bucket on <laughs> the it's bucket on list. list. So to you speak. know, I will I will say the difference between my uncle Luigi growing up, he was the second youngest of eight. I think second youngest of eight, and um, you know the the difference between. Him, where you know, the family he was growing up with, and me now is there was 10 of them, you know. And my uncle Luigi, I mean, he was probably eight or nine years old, walking the neighborhood looking for those snails, helping put food on the table. That's how it was done. And you know, I don't have 10 people to call upon. If I did, I'd be raising hogs, you know, (laughs) I'd have a cow in the barn across the street you know, for milk, and I'd, ha- I'd be raising hogs and butchering hogs, but I don't, you know, I don't have 10 people, but I have the interest and I have the beginnings of the know-how to do most of it. Um, I just need, you know, I just need 10 children <laughs> <laughs> to put yeah. to work. That's kind of the difference. It's kind of the difference. It's like, you know, when, when there's, when there was 10 of them in the house, everyone had a job, you know and if you re- if you remember in that interview he talked about on the day that they would butcher a hog mon uncle luigi said that was the day that everyone in the house had a job no one went without work that day because there was so many stages to taking a live hog and killing and breaking it down uh, into all the components, and because they didn't have refrigeration, yeah. what do you do when you have then three or four hundred pounds of meat?
2: Yeah, and you're well, in LA; you're not in Minnesota in the fall. You know, no,
1: no. So it had to, you know, so it it wasn't the job of one or two; it was the job of the entire household, and um, to take care of that because they would do more than one. You know, it wasn't just one one hog, and um, so it was. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of work involved. Yeah, there's a lot of work. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why so many people have so easily turned away from from basic skills, because it's it's, it's when so there's okay. one person, sometimes two, it's not enough. I mean, it's just the truth of the matter, right?
2: Yeah, or or the other on the other side of it, like, how are you going <laughs> to you're not going to eat a whole hog, right? Well, okay. well, <laughs> so so even if you could preser- butcher
1: it but through, pre- through preservation, yeah. You, you know, that hog can be made to last an entire year.
0: Yeah, elsewhere yeah. in the interview, he talks about how, um, I guess, his mom cooked pork chops and preserved them under fat, and then there was prosciutto was being made, too.
1: Yeah, the, the legs would be cured, would be salt cured. The, uh, you know, uh, the, the blood was, was, was handled to be oh, made in right. blood. Blood
0: sausage, so. right? That and, was a every, every, popular... and then
1: the head became head cheese, and then there was sausage that was made. But all the meats... All the meats, sausages, pork chops, all the, the, the muscle cuts and the sausages that weren't going to go into some other, I don't know, entity, they would have to be cooked and then layered in crocks with the rendered fat down in the basement. That's how they preserved the meat to be eaten later. And it would last for months because it would be completely airtight. Um, they didn't have a freezer And they didn't even have a refrigerator until I think later in the 20s when they could afford to rent one. Um, They didn't even own it. They rented it. And it would have been small. But the reason they had the wood-fired oven is because ovens were too small to bake the amount of bread <laughs> that, that they needed to bake for all these people.
0: Yeah, he said yeah. he was cooking bread. His mom was cooking bread for the whole family. So there was a huge bake once a week. And Do then, you know what kind of bread well, she Well, but I also want to no. remind the audience, though, that this was going on in Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, in was, urban Los well, I guess Semi, there, it there looked were, like it was semi-rural, open but, lots and things. But yeah. it was not out in the country yeah. by any means.
1: No, this was not definitely not the country. And I have to tell you, in the twenties, if you go back and you look, this area was fully developed. It wasn't until they were on sixty seventh. It wasn't until you got down to the one hundred and tenth. Uh, numbered streets did it start to become open land so they were in a fully developed area I mean there was a public grammar school across the street I mean it was it was developed he did have access to, to I think an acre of land down at like 115th or something like that in San Pedro that he uh, owned with his sister that was Philomena and um but and that's uh, that's where he would actually raise the hogs. That's
2: what I was going to uh, ask. Where the where were the hogs? <laughs> yeah, no, the
1: hogs were raised out there because yeah. they were away from houses. And he eventually had to stop raising hogs because because houses got built up around him mm-hmm. very quickly. And um, he, people complained. So he switched to rabbits. And, uh, and on that land, they would have up to 300 rabbits that they raised that they sold for meat.
0: Yeah, he said he, there was a little sign that said, you know, yeah. rabbits oh, you're, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Pull up and, yeah. yeah, like a roadside stand.
1: Exactly. Well, so, why
0: yeah. why don't we get to some of the things that you've done in, in your yard? I know that uh, you taught me a lot about vegetables, actually. Um, oh,
1: well, thank That's nice to hear. Thank you.
0: Well, and, you know, we talked about, we just talked about how much work it takes to do all these things. So I don't know, for us, it's been kind of like, well, we don't have 10 children to, to do all this. So, <laughs> But what we do grow, which is a very small plot of vegetables, I want those vegetables to count. Yes. You know, to not be just something you could get at the supermarket. And that's how I think we first kind of got connected, is you were selling seeds that were... Of things you just cannot, you know, you can't find in a supermarket. They're extraordinary things, yes. extraordinary vegetables. And at, at some point, you were growing them for restaurants too. Here, and I remember another yes. uh, a scene where somebody's weeping as you brought them into the the <laughs> restaurant, and the chef started crying because who it was Italian? It should be said. It, it
1: was that was Isabella Isabella right. and yeah, she. When I brought in uh, a huge basket of. Uh, uh, chicoria and endives that are not grown here i think they might be grown on a small scale now here and there but they're just you just don't see them i had to import the seeds from italy she she literally broke out into tears you know because she hadn't seen them since italy and it was pretty it was very sweet it was very sweet she's a really wonderful woman an incredible cook too, but so. for a few.
0: I mean, nice thing is for a few bucks, anyone can grow them. You get the seeds, you grow absolutely. Them. You grow yeah. these things. Do you have some favorite vegetables over the years that that are the kind of those special ones that people might want to consider growing? I can think of one, but you uh, probably uh, well, guess what I'm what, thinking Well, what's,
1: what's the one you com- that comes to
0: mind for you? Well, you know, it's the new kale, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, yes, figueroa,
1: for those uh, listening who don't know what Spigarello is, it's, it's, um, uh, Spigarello is a, a dialect name that it's known by in southern Italy, but its, it's full official name is cavolo Braccolo, e which means the branching broccoli of Naples. It's uh, grown for the leaves themselves, and you would prepare them the way you would kale, and I'm not a fan of kale. I'll say that. I oh just boy. Explo- I'm sure I'll explode heads. But I'm sorry, <laughs> I am not a fan of kale. Kale is certainly uh, right. Never right. have been. And um, <laughs> but this um, is uh, spigarello. As you, I know that you're a fan of it. Is uh, spectacular. I just, I love it. It's, it's a, uh, in all the typical ways that you would prepare dark leafy greens. So, but for me, of course, that's a favorite for me. Spigarello, and it's. Um, it's it's uh, near impossible to find here, so in you have story. to grow it. Yeah. And but, it would grow um,
2: anywhere, wouldn't it, pretty much?
1: That, you, you know what, that re- vegetable, because it it's grown in southern Italy, which is, you know, not, a, is very typical of, like, a southern California climate, it, it will grow anywhere you could grow a broccoli. Yeah. And, um, you know, in southern California or a warm region, you know, you start those, you know, uh, uh, brassicas in the in the late summer early fall and if you start them in september or october in southern california you know you're going to have uh spicarello by around uh december january february mm-hmm. uh very easy to grow and it actually can live in a garden for up to about i've seen it two or three years yeah we had one of those yeah they're great. yeah it'll kind of stick around mm-hmm. and um so the other ones that the other ones that immediately come to mind that stand out to me there's there's a uh, a leafy uh, green a chicoria called Castelfranco or Castelfranco, which is um, kind of a it's like a loose open form, it's kind of like a uh, sort of the form is like a butter lettuce a butterhead lettuce but this is a chicoria so it has like a mild kind of bitter uh, taste to it but it's absolutely beautiful sort of like a celery celadon green speckled with burgundy color. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's visually it's a absolutely stunning vegetable uh green in a salad but um but it's oh it's absolutely delicious and it's uh really really good eating it's it's probably uh, one of my favorite salad greens. I have my absolute favorite tomato, which uh, from Frankie Seeds is, they, for the English audience, they call it red pear. It's a special selection, but it's a very spe- specific spe- special selection for Frankie. And it's a very large, uh, sort of a f- fluted or ruffled pear-shaped tomato, up to about a pound and a half each. And it has the most unique texture. It's very, very silky smooth. It's very good fresh eating, but it's particularly good uh, when cooked. Fantastic for sauces. Uh, there are red pears, uh, regional red pear varieties from all over Italy. This one, particularly from Frankie, is is especially especially good. But um, my favorite, you know, zucchini. Regionally, Italy has probably hundreds of varieties of zucchini. I think in America we probably have two, Um, but Italy, you know, every little town, every village, every little region has its own zucchini that they are very protective of. And my favorite actually comes from Naples, and it's, um, I think in Italian it's called Striato di Napoli, the Striped of Naples. And it's a a dark green and light green stripe. It absolutely has the most incredible flavor. You know, I want to tell you a a little quick story about it. When I first discovered Frankie Seeds on my very first trip to Italy, I bought a bunch of stuff and I thought, well, you know what? I'll see if they get taken at, you know, at the airport in and custom, and customs they do if they, you know, if they don't, you know, lucky day. But they didn't find it. They didn't ask and they didn't look. So I got them in. I suppose that was probably illegal, but oh, oh well. <laughs> anyway, I bought a bunch of zucchini seeds and I still had time to grow them. And I grew out about five or six different varieties and that striped variety was one of them. And um, this was at a time when um, Monk Luigi and Lucia and Jenny and I had a bunch of, of old aunts and, and my uncle who were all still alive. They're all quite elderly, all they're all in their eighties. And I went to go visit them and I took samples of every single zucchini to them. And we did it I, I gave them a little test and they thought it was really fun. I I secretly I bagged each zucchini and I numbered them, didn't give them the names, and I told them, I said, I really want your opinion. I said, I want you to cook each zucchini separately but the same way, and I want you to tell me which one you liked. And they were all really excited, and they, they all discussed <laughs> it on the phone, but they all picked the same one, and it was, it was the striped zucchini from Naples. They didn't know it was from Naples, and they said it reminded us of what our dad, Giuseppe, would grow. Hmm. And I thought that was really interesting that after all these years, it took them back to what their dad, my great-grandfather, grew, And I thought, ah, this is the real thing because that's, you know, it's this this is the real deal because it's the flavor that you remember, you know, flavor and aromas and music will take you back to five years old in two seconds flat. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's what it did for them. We get these emails from people in Italy saying, oh, you know, that's the vegetable of this region because I don't think people realize that there's not one Italian food, of course. It's very regional there. And the same goes for the vegetables, too. Mm -hmm. There's very specific varieties that are used for different parts of Italy.
1: Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And in some cases, you know, there are varieties from southern Italy that people in northern Italy have never even heard of. Right. Mm. It, they don't even know about them, and, which, is, uh, which I find really interesting, because when you think about it, Italy is not that, very, is not that large of a country. Mm. But it's so regionally driven uh, that some things just don't make it outside of the region, even in the country. Because there's so much variety still, uh, still going on in their vegetable varieties, and they're very protective, and there are varieties of tomatoes and other vegetables that are given the same protection and same, uh, a similar designation as we would for varietals of wine grapes. And um, there are several varieties of tomatoes that are protected that way, and I don't know if spigarella is protected that way, but I think that's, um, I think that's reverence. For their their cultural food history,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, yeah. I think that's fantastic.
0: Well, let me let me ask questions about some controversial vegetables around this household. Oh, you, know, you know where we're going with this <laughs> oh, one? It's, oh uh, no. certain squash called Lunga di Napoli. Yes. Uh, which uh, you gave me seeds from. Which, yeah. um, that's
2: Squash Baby. Squash listeners. Baby, because uh,
0: that's a long story. We had one that was stolen. And it ended up being called Squash Baby. The <laughs> next year, I grew two or three of them in the backyard. And which it, took, been, over it took over. It took over the entire <laughs> small backyard. Yes. And copiously produced massive uh, squashes. Uh, your, your feelings on Lunga de My
1: feelings. Well, I'm really. Um, <laughs> I've got a story for it, but <laughs> but anyways, I you know that particular pumpkin. I know you call it a squash. Oh, yeah, squash yeah, right. And pumpkin it's pumpkin. it's shaped like a butternut right. squash, it, but it's right.
2: a, technically a pumpkin. That's right.
1: It is. It is. It is a pumpkin of the machado variety. You know, there's there's pumpkin mixta. Uh, you know, uh, cucurbita mixta. Uh, you know, so forth. This is a machado. It is related to the butternut squash. It's in that same family of of cucurbita. And um, it's it's a pumpkin. I grew up hearing stories about the pumpkins my great-grandfather grew in southern Italy. And he grew them in Rhode Island. And he grew them here. And he grew them in huge quantities in Rhode Island. Because while the family would eat them, um, he fed them to his hogs. Mm-hmm. He raised hogs as a business <laughs> in Rhode Island. And so I heard about this pumpkin, this wonderful pumpkin. So finally, when I was importing the seeds... I got curious, and I asked my uncle Luigi, describe it to me. So he described it, and I sent him the pictures of that pumpkin. And he said, that's it. He mm-hmm. said that's that's the one. Mm-hmm. And it's the pumpkin that is associated It's Lungo de Napoli. it's the it's the long pumpkin of of Naples. And it um it it has a really interesting flavor. It has sort of a floral note. And um but yeah, it's it, I mean, my gosh, they 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 get enormous. I mean, the vines are very rampant. It's a very old variety. It's you know it's, it hasn't been bred for compact growth and you know so forth and so on. But um, it has a you know I, I, it it's you know you know I, I have a real uh, affection for it because it's so associated with my great grandfather. So <laughs> is, is that enough?
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it was controversial around here because we had so much of it. It was so generous with itself. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you know, saw- but it was somewhat. Um, Bland. I can see that as livestock fodder, it would be <laughs> fantastic because it you know those things are huge. Uh, you know well, you, you could, know it's funny you could that you feed...
1: should say it's bland. I mean, it, you know what I have grown it, and it was insanely flavorful. Huh. so I have to I will say it is entirely possible that because these are open pollinated vegetables and they're you know they're they're not modern varieties, it is possible that and it's the same thing will happen with open you know uh, heirloom tomatoes is that sometimes genetically one plant may just not be ideal Mm. and it may not produce uh the best tasting and but that that would lead i'm not gonna i'm gonna stop there because that'll lead me into a story about (laughs) proper selection for seed saving and building of genetics of and uh, and the, the the saving of cultural seeds which is something that people never do. They they never educate themselves sufficiently on on proper seed saving, and um, the genetics decline. Hmm. But it's possible. I'm not saying that you you know I believe you when you say it was bland. Where I have grown it, when it's been in, insanely flavorful. Oh, that's great. And um, and something that I've used it for is actually making uh, pumpkin syrup. Ooh. and that's it's uh-huh. kind of a, a an extension of making uh candied like a ca- glace free cl- cl- uh, candied fruit but you use pumpkin and it takes several weeks but oh my god it's the most delicious it's it, insanely it's a syrup, flavorful like a
2: maple syrup like like,
1: like like imagine maple syrup but it's insanely intense pumpkin flavor
0: pa- how do you do that
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> um you- it, it, takes, it takes many, many weeks. I happen to use uh, if, uh, organic evaporated cane juice sugar, which is that stuff that's a little, still a little brown, you know, mm. it has a little bit of the molasses in it still. But uh, I, I don't remember the ratios right now, but basically, you cube the pumpkin, take it off, you know, take the peel off, you cube it, and you create a uh, kind of a simple syrup of about equal amounts of sugar to water by weight and you bring it to a boil to dissolve all the sugar. And then you add the pumpkin, you bring it to a boil, just bring it to a boil, you let it go for, you know, not a heavy boil, but a medium boil for about a minute. You shut the heat off and you take it off the heat, and you leave it overnight or up to two days. And about every two days, you take the pumpkin out, you add about another cup of sugar, bring it back to a boil, boil it for about a minute to two or three minutes, add the pumpkin back, For and let it boil. You know, just for just enough to really heat the pumpkin through. You don't want to over. You don't want to cook it to death. You just want to heat it through. Take it off the heat and you let it sit. And it take. It depends on the pumpkin and then you know just the you know the makeup of that particular pumpkin. But it takes about four to six weeks. And what's going on here is is actually a process of osmosis. The moisture of the pumpkin is slowly being pulled out and being replaced. By the sugar so what you end up with is you're evaporating that moisture off the syrup in the boiling process and what you're left with is this perfectly clear pumpkin flavored syrup and candied pumpkin you have two products in one Ooh. and um in fact i have i have quarts of it in my refrigerator from last year. It lasts indefinitely if you refrigerate it. It does have to be refrigerated. It's not shelf stable like, you know, corn syrup or something. But um and, what do you do with it? Well I've used it in recipes, but quite frankly, it is absolutely delicious on buckwheat pancakes. Oh yum. <laughs> I'm a a fa- I'm a fan of buckwheat pancakes. I just I I grew up with those. I think they're delicious. But you know, on on classic French toast, uh, it can be it can be Used as a sweetener in whipped cream to make like a pumpkin flavored whipped cream that would go on. You know, I have my cousin Marina is a nut for anything pumpkin. So anything you can imagine, you could sweeten teas with it, like iced tea sweetened with it. You can, you know, wherever you would use kind of a, a syrup.
2: Have you put it on ice cream?
1: You could. Put, oh, absolutely. You put know, it on ice. You ice know, cream. latte. I won't make that joke. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. You put <laughs> yeah, Starbucks you could, to shame
2: well, <laughs> with your pumpkin latte.
1: <laughs> you could put it in your latte. Uh, there you go. <laughs> or your chai. <laughs> uh, no, wherever, you know what, just let your imagination go. It's, it's uh, you know, just drizzled over a plain cheesecake as opposed to something else. Because it's very intensely flavored. I mean, it's, it's unmistakable. It's a really rich uh, pumpkin flavor. And um, and I made it with the Lungenopoli pumpkin, and I thought the results were really spectacular.
2: And it's out on the stove for that six weeks. You're just like sitting, or are you putting it's, it. In- well,
1: you 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 take it off the stove for its one to two day rest between the stages. Is it
2: in the fridge between, or is it just no? It's just sitting no. around.
1: Room temperature. Yeah. Room temperature. And, you know, there's so much sugar in it, it's not going to spoil. Yeah. If you left it out indefinitely, yeah, you'd probably get mold. That would, you know, occur mm-hmm. on the surface. But it's the the time frame in which it sits out, it's not sitting out long enough that it's going to spoil. And then, like I said, you bring it, you pull all your fruit out. This is the exact same process. This is a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. But I have mastered the process of making what's in French called glacé fui. Which um, is the process of candying fruits, mm. even in their whole stage. I've done entire pears, and the pears are candied all the way through. Oh, that's neat! And um, they're really—they're quite beautiful. They're spectacular, but they are a classic ingredient to a dish called Cassata de Siciliana, which is a beautiful cake that's decorated with. Frutta de candita is the Italian, glace fruit is the uh, is the French, but it's candied fruits, and mm-hmm. you you can do whole cherries, you can do whole plums, you know whatever. Pineapple is classic. It's they're really they're really uh, they're very. It takes a while to make them, however, they they're really well worth it because anybody who wants candied fruit, you're not buying that god-awful garbage that's full of chemicals mm-hmm. you know people that might like... like
2: fruit cake again maybe if they well,
1: absolutely i have to tell you a fruit cake made with the real thing is not the fruit cake of you know <laughs> of the your sears, nightmares of the sears catalog <laughs> you know that got that oh that god-awful like it all tastes like plastic and chemicals so the swiss colony <laughs> oh so <laughs> Oh, you know, sorry, Swiss colony. No, no, sorry. That's don't the... sue
2: a Swiss colony. Oh, when I that... was a kid, I would like look through their catalogs, you know, and yeah. I'd get all starry eyed about the, you know, I don't know, the logs with the mice on them or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh my it God. meant Christmas to me, you know, and it was like I was so thrilled if somebody gave us a Swiss colony package with yeah. the little sausages and cheeses and foil.
1: Oh, God, I mean, we didn't love that. Yeah, you'd open it up, get that huge box, but then when you broke it all down, you realized... There was nothing in it. There was nothing. It was 75% cardboard and and, and stuffing. Excelsior, and you would have, like three little bricks of cheese in a box. I know, of
2: like in the catalog, the cheese would look really big, and then you get the <laughs> cheese, and it would be like two inches.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know it was always such a letdown when you broke that box down. Oh, especially, oh.
2: I mean, you were coming from an Italian family, so you knew what good food was. <laughs> oh, no. But even me, in my, in my, um, you know, in my uh, ignorance, I knew that that was very wrong. <laughs> oh.
1: but, uh, so, but on the subject of of the, the 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 candied fruit, you know, that's something we should you know aside from this conversation right now, we should get together and I'll we'll spend six weeks and I'll teach you how to do it. Because oh, it's be really great. it's a technique it's a the technique itself, the science of the technique and the knowledge of knowing how to do that, you can employ with other things in the kitchen. Mm and um it's really uh it's really mastering that and see here's okay here's an example like from when i was a kid i wanted to know how to make that so i just like sought it out and like where do i and just found a source i found an old cookbook and then i found some other sources and did some searching like you know in italy and in spain through google quite a few years ago, and I figured out how to do it, and and, and made it, because I was tired of buying that god-awful stuff, you know, mm-hmm. because there's a, a cookie that my family, well, a lot of southern Italians make, but our version of a cookie that calls for some of those fruits, but ugh, I just didn't want that chemical flavor anymore, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't want the chemicals, nor the chemical flavor, I should say, so I learned how to make those fruits myself. Well, and...
2: that's going to be a date for us, we're going to... We're going to do that. Okay.
0: Yes, we should get together. Yeah.
2: yeah. Absolutely.
1: Put it the calendar. All right.
0: <laughs> all right. Back to, there was one, This, this that all started with Lunga Napoli, the <laughs> infamous giant squash that's literally <laughs> the size of a desk. I'm not or a ba- kidding it's, people. It's, well, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, not exaggerating. I mean, we, it we call was, it
2: squash, it's like squash baby, it was actually squash toddler. It's about as yeah. big as a toddler. I mean, it's- It's insane. Yeah, they're insane. But there's help. another vegetable, which oh. is cardoons. Oh. Now,
0: have you ever worked with cardoons? Cardoons, for people who don't know, are a relative of artichoke. They're like a yes. forerunner of artichokes. except
2: you, they don't have edible blossoms like artichokes. Well, they have you tiny eat, edible well, they, blossoms. Well, they have. Do you, people eat them? They probably yeah. do, but they're little. They're like more like thistle flowers. I mean, it is that's all the whole family thistle, right? But the cardoons don't have the big blossoms like the artichokes. No. but but the people they're usually eating the leaves, so that's why they're grown for the.
1: Well, leaves. they're not eating the leaves, but okay, the, okay, okay, yeah. Set
2: sorry. us uh, right.
1: Okay. Cardoons or cardone is an old cousin of artichokes. And, you know, they, it's a step above wild thistle, um, but it's a step back from uh, artichokes in terms of, like, you know, the edible blossoms. However, in Italy, and in many areas, not just in Italy, but in the Mediterranean region, but particularly in Italy, they are very prized. And there are, once again, regional varieties of Cardone. Uh, in fact, there's one called Gobranizza, which is a very, very famous one. It's very rare here. Oh, the hunchback hunchback yeah I, I
2: was reading about that yeah so the, the
1: hunchback of, of, of uh, Nice, of niece and it's it's you know in it, it has this name because the plant has it kind of curves I guess of some sort and then there's other ones that are like named you know after silver because they're very silver in color but you don't eat this you, you do not eat the um, the leaves themselves but it's the, sp- the immature center of stalks. And when it's properly, when it's, when I I should say, when it's properly harvested, meaning at the beginning of the season, which is usually around Christmas time, because these types of things will start to come back to growth when the cool weather comes. Because it's like an artichoke, it's a herbaceous perennial, it's going to completely disappear uh, above ground you'll you'll have the huge root underground but the but the tops from one season they disappear you get rid of them and then it starts to regrow and when the stalk of this plant the 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 whole cluster let me let me back up picture a really large head of celery that's what it should look like when you cut the leaves off and you cut it off the plant. It will hold itself together and it'll look like a very large, I don't know, is that called a head of celery? I don't know. But you Mm, know what I'm talking about when you go buy a bunch of celery.
2: I guess I'm confused because I know our artichokes die down to the ground and vanish and then they come back up small, you know. But our monstrous cardoon that we quibble over (laughs) never goes away. He doesn't die down.
1: It doesn't die down? Never. Well, blame that on gl- global warming. <laughs> <laughs> it should disappear.
2: Yeah, it doesn't. It's so. I mean, that.
1: Well, thing, it sends out uh, babies. It keeps right? sending
2: out new babies, but it's just taking over the yard. But it's it's an army. It's it's unstoppable. Okay. But so, I. We, to,
1: the best way to control it is, is to eat to, the babies. Is to eat it, but you don't. It, it, it's not going to be. It, it's not going to be good to eat. In the warm season, it's going to be very woody and and very stringy and tough, and it's not going to taste very good. Probably what you might want to do is give it a really, really hard summer prune and just cut it to the ground and get rid of the growth, like Uh maybe in the late summer. Yeah. And then give it a fertilizer, put some mulch around it, and, and you'll have to irrigate it. It's going to be better if it's irrigated, if we're not getting rains, because if it doesn't have enough moisture, it will still grow, but the stalks will be somewhat dry and tough mm-hmm. it needs it does need moisture because it's um, been
2: growing with no irrigation i mean i have to give it a hand that it can be so happy and healthy oh
1: they will they will actually After having be no be very invasive down by the beach i think in newport it's like it escaped and like they grow wild mm-hmm. um and they're kind of invasive But uh, in certain areas, but because they will, they will grow without irrigation completely. They're amazingly drought tolerant, but if you're going to grow it, to eat it, it needs irrigation to be, have more moisture content and be uh, in a a more tender state. Okay. So
2: you cut it down to the ground and you let the babies come back up.
1: Yes. Uh, And then you're just
2: harvesting the entire baby at the ground.
1: Just just cut it off at the ground, and it'll yeah. send up
2: more babies.
1: It will send up more babies. You kind of want to cut it in such a way that the that the that you're gonna like I said you're gonna end up with what's like a big head of celery. It kind of stays connected at the bottom,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and then cut off the leaves, and then you know you you have you know this really large beautiful um, you know group of stalks. Now if they're if the if the whole head is uh, very young and tender. Uh, there are recipes to prepare it whole. But if the stalks are a little bit longer, a little more tougher, let's say, you might have to peel them and pull some of the strings out. Typically, they, the, the, however you prepare them, typically the, the stalks are sometimes they're cut up into chunks if they're going to be fried. Sometimes they're left whole. It depends on the recipe. But they're typically blanched until tender in salted water. And then they go to for a. Then there's a second step to a preparation. Um, Your the blanching step is is all about prepping them for the next stage. And one of the classic uh, hors d'oeuvres, you know, um, before a dinner would be chunks of it that have, they've been blanched and then dried and then they're roll they you know egg egg and breadcrumbs and then deep fried. Mm. Eaten that way is really good. The another way is after they're blanched. They are. Um, I don't know what the. I don't know what the Italian word is, but like. Uh, I'm sure you've had a grottine of potatoes mm-hmm. that's made with cream and maybe a little bit of cheese, a gruyere. Okay, that with with uh, cardoons, absolutely to die for. Mm. But one of the easiest things to to make with cardoons when they're really young and tender is a cream of cardoon soup. Oh, nice. Which is pureed and usually has some cream or butter, and it's intensely flavored. It tastes just like it tastes like artichokes, mm-hmm. and but it tastes like the part of the artichoke which is always my favorite. And I and this is going to sound crazy. The favorite part of the artichoke that I like to eat is actually about the three to four inches of the stem of the flower
3: mm-hmm.
1: of mm-hmm. the of the traditional artichoke. There's something about the flavor of that stem. You don't that,
2: mean the heart. You mean the stem.
1: I don't mean the heart. I mean the stem itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever when I harvest my artichokes, I always usually get about six inches of the stem, and then you know, and then I kind of judge at what point it goes from sort of you know tough to tender. But that's always my favorite of the whole, for whatever reason, the flavor of that I just love. But the cardoons taste like that, hmm. and it's very much an artichoke flavor. But it just it's um, I'll have to come when your cardoon season and we'll we'll uh, collaborate. We'll Mm -hmm. collaborate and we'll do... With them, um, I had no idea you had a cardoon plant. I used to have lots of them here, but then they were huge, mm-hmm. and I needed the space, and they had to go.
2: Well, because I've been eyeballing because we don't eat ours because we don't know how, and you know, and it's and it's as tall as me almost. And <laughs> I've been eyeballing its corner of the yard, going, you know, I could I could take that out and plant something else there. And Eric's like, no, no, my cardoon, we will eat it someday.
1: <laughs> give it, give, it, give, give, it, give it another year, and like I said, this you know it um Give cut it. Yeah, uh, I'll happily probably, go after it. Probably I'll... in uh, August, late August or early September. Cut it to the ground.
2: That'll be pleasing.
1: Maybe in early October. <laughs> maybe in October. <laughs> cut it to the ground and get rid of it entirely, mm-hmm. and give the stalks to the chickens because the chickens may eat the leaves. Or I used to give it all to the chickens. The chickens used to love it.
2: It's a and... lot of great mass, you know. For oh, yeah, uh, yeah oh, like mulching be, or whatever. Man,
1: those are huge leaves. You know, like it's great fodder. Give it to the dairy cow. You have a dairy cow, right? That's oh yeah, right. yeah. I have a
0: miniature
3: one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beagle with an utter. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, the cow, the cow would love it. But anyway, uh, but no, give it another year, and then, and we will. Change your mind. We'll yeah.
2: have we'll have a cartoon. Well, I always said. See, I didn't know. I didn't think about the cut and come again schema. I, I was like, I was like, well, Eric, you know, I, I you know, I think when they grow them to eat them, they're growing them, you know, in the field, and they're harvesting them when they're as big as celery. I knew that, you know. I'm like, you don't eat because Eric's like, you know, looking at the six foot leaf, going, we're going to eat this, and I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> no, <it's
3: when laughs> uh, there, it's there, but it's I thought it were, was too
2: there. late. I thought we had gone past. You know, we hadn't raised it correctly, or maybe it. Did you plant that, honey, or did you just or did it grow itself? I just think it planted itself. itself actually. <laughs> yeah, those are always the strongest. So, um, yeah. It's anyway, too,
3: it's,
1: it's too late right now. This time yeah. of year, it's you know we're at the, we're close to the beginning of August, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, but no, we're not far away. Uh, it will be cardoon season again.
0: That was Craig Rugless of Winnetka Farms. On the next episode of this podcast, we'll talk to Craig about chickens and ducks and much more. To connect with Craig, search for The Kitchen at Winnetka Farms on Facebook or check out the show notes for this episode number 56 on rootsimple.com. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591. Or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening.
3: Uh mm-hmm.